episode number two. I'm a neurosurgeon, not God. Hello, I answered waking up. It was 5.30 a.m. The voice on the other end greeted me. It was one of the two cardiothoracic surgeons. I had been expecting a nurse from the floor or even an emergency room physician, not him. Calmly, he relayed the history of the patient he was calling me about. The calmness in his voice was due to the experience of the surgeon as well as the trust he has in the surgeon he is talking to. I've come to realize this as I've gained experience over the years. I was finishing up the last stretch of call at Shannon, the hospital I worked for during my two years in San Angelo. I'd accepted a contract to be one in three neurosurgeons, which meant a total of 10 days of call a month. But when I arrived, one of the surgeons decided to retire, and the other one refused to hire another third neurosurgeon. While I had met with the hospital administration and begged with them to hire another surgeon since I was working 14 to 18 hour days regularly, my marriage had fallen apart and I'd become a single mother. However, this laid on deaf ears since the most senior surgeon didn't want the extra set of hands. It just meant dividing the pie a little bit smaller. They left me little options. The neurosurgeons back in my hometown had offered for me to come back to Abilene. Realizing I'd lost the war on ever being able to have a life in San Angelo and practice neurosurgery, I took them up on their offer. My contract of two years had just been completed, and I was finishing up the 60-day notice that it had said I needed to give. I knew the grass wasn't always greener, but I knew if I was going to be a decent mother, I couldn't be on call nearly as much as Shannon expected me to be, as well as keep up an elective practice that easily was the volume of two neurosurgeons. I easily saw 100 patients a week and operated the other two days while still being on call. One of my OR blocks, which are times surgeons are given to perform their elective cases, went actually from 7 a.m. in the morning till 9 p.m. at night each Monday. The extra responsibility also included the 60 patients a week my mid-level saw that I was supervising as well as responsible for. I was not a wimp. I was human and it was too much for me to do. I was off at 7 a.m. but for him to call me now it must have meant it was emergent. And sure enough it was. I didn't even capture the first of the story. I was too tired for having several days in a row where I'd only gotten two to three hours of sleep due to continuous interruptions at night. His story actually reminded me of the first patient I ever saw as a third-year medical student. It was a patient who suffered a stroke following a heart transplant. I was on my neurology rotation, the first day of clinical rotations. I didn't have a resident to shadow. I was working with a private practice neurologist that covered one of the university hospitals associated with my medical school, the University of Texas Southwestern. 
I had contacted a secretary as instructed, and she had told me to go see two ICU patients. Both had had cardiothoracic surgery, and both of them had had strokes. I went to the ICU. It was so overwhelming. The medical chart at that time was actually still on paper. The writing of physicians was extremely difficult for me to read. I think the implementation of the electronic record was the best thing for medical students in hindsight. Reading medical documents is similar to learning a second language, much less even more difficult if it looks like a chicken scratch. I was just getting the hand of it, and with no one to run it by, I remember poring over both charts for over an hour each, trying to figure out all the words. However, I did have an advantage when I went to see the patients due to Leanne, a general surgery PGY-4 resident who had led my small group of second-year med students on our weekly class of seeing patients and practicing history and physicals on patients throughout the whole hospital. We would often play the game each week of sick, not sick, or dying. We would stand at the bedside of ICU patients, not knowing anything about why they were there, so we would make an educated guess on their conditions based on our observation. Sick. These were the patients we could help. If we didn't help them, they would die without our intervention, either medically or surgically. These were the patients that made us doctors, and it is why we do what we do. Not sick. These were the patients that took up our time from the quote-unquote sick patients. They wouldn't die if we didn't intervene. We were doctors for these patients as well. But if we had a sick patient, we didn't need to let these patients keep us from focusing on those where we could make a difference. Dying. These were the patients that no matter what we did, they would die. I found out later that with neurosurgery, we had a lot of these patients. Later in training, I realized that the patient here was not the patient, but actually the family of the patient. They had to understand that nothing medically could be done for their loved one without us physicians giving up hope on them. However, as Leanne taught us, the dying patients also would take away our time from the sick. And we must never forget to lose our focus on helping those sick patients while juggling both the not sick and the dying patients. So due to this game, I'd seen hundreds of ICU patients. I'd have had a systemic approach. I started first with the vitals, heart rate. Is it normal? Blood pressure. Is it high or low? Is there an arterial line to measure the blood pressure second by second? Or just a blood pressure cuff? Is the pressure high? Is there a drip running to make it low? For example, nicarnapine. If it is low, is the patient on pressure support to make it high? And if so, which one? For an example, Levofen. Is there central access for these special medications? If they do have a central line, 
What is the fluid status by measuring their central venous pressure? Next, I look to see what other drips are running. Usually if the patient is intubated, that means they have a breathing tube down their throat. They have pain medication running as well as a sedation drip. This is so they're not agitated or having the gag reflex for having the breathing tube down their throat. Pain medication examples include morphine or fentanyl. Sedation medications also include Versed, Propofol, or Presidex. Other examples of medications running into the patient are blood thinners, an example heparin for anything from a pulmonary embolus to a heart attack, antibiotics, and which antibiotics are the patients given? We have a misconception that if you just get an antibiotic, it will clear the infection, but there's different antibiotics for each type of disease. For pneumonia, MRSA infections, urinary tract infections, there's a whole plethora each of these have to be tailored. So what antibiotic the patient is being given gives me a clue about what's going on in their entire system. We also have fluid replacement, normal saline. And commonly in neurosurgery, we do very concentrated normal saline to keep their sodium level up. Many people don't know, but a higher sodium helps with brain swelling. So it's very often that we give them, quote-unquote, hot socks or concentrated sodium to slowly raise their sodium in their blood to protect their brain from swelling. And there's other things like electrolyte repletion. And this is potassium, magnesium. These are needed for several things, mostly to keep the patient from going into atrial fibrillation and also to keep them from being constipated and ileus while they're connected to so many drips and their bowels aren't working as well. Next, I look at the ventilator settings. Where is the oxygen level? Rule of thumb, if the FiO2, the oxygen given to the patient is greater than 60%, the patient is having a respiratory issue. If the FiO2 is greater than 60, then I'll look at the pressure support. Is it higher to keep the lungs up? If it is that, what are the ventilator settings are on? Volume controlled, pressure controlled, CPAP. And CPAP is where the patient is doing all the work and breathing on their own. We're just supporting the tube that they have to breathe around. And if you've ever tried to breathe through a straw, you can understand this concept. Now with COVID, most of the patients are on ventilators and having respiratory issues. Next, my eyes go to the Foley, the catheter that drains your urine. You can learn a lot from looking at a patient's urine. It can be concentrated if the patient is dehydrated or clear as water if the patient is going through what we call diabetes insipidus. That's where they can't hold onto their water, and this is commonly seen after a pituitary tumor surgery. Last but not least, I look at the patient. From all those clues, I was the best one at the game, sick, not sick, or dying. Later, 
I did realize that it wasn't a game, but it had developed my surgeon intuition that would save many and many a patient's years down the road. I thank Leanne for that lesson as well as many she gave me without me realizing it until later. So as I looked at this patient who had recently undergone a heart transplant, he was extubated in the ICU. He looked, despite having undergone this recent surgery, not sick. His vitals were normal and he had a few IV running, but only basic medication. However, when I examined him, he had difficulty speaking with me where I could understand. He had had an embolic territory stroke. And this is where a small clot went into the brain, probably during the transplant surgery or right afterwards, that had affected Broca's area, an area responsible for the motor function of speech. I remember his spouse looking exhausted. I figured the last week had been an ordeal for her. I had reviewed his MRI, and with my interest in neurosurgery, had felt that this would only be a small setback. But that was not my position to say to the family at this time. The stroke had been silent until he had been extubated, and they realized he wasn't able to communicate appropriately anymore. I knew it was going to take a lot of speech therapy in the future, but now he just needed time to recover from his large operation. I relayed all this, as well as the other patient I had seen that afternoon, to the attending neurologist who later rounded with me on the two patients. He had been impressed with my knowledge based on the fact that this was my first day of clinical rotations. I had Leanne to thank, as well as neurosurgery residents, who had allowed me to tag along with them so many times after I'd had the weekend off after a big test during my second year of medical school. So as I listened to the cardiothoracic surgeon relating the history, I had learned the day before that they had noticed the patient's left side had not been moving, but he was so unstable it wasn't until overnight when he stopped following commands and he blew a pupil that they took him for a head CT and emergent imaging of the brain to see if he had had a stroke. Unfortunately, he had, and it had involved his entire right hemisphere. I was up by this time, scrolling through the images on my computer after logging in from home. I had told the surgeon I would need to take him back for an emergent decompressive craniectomy. I would get dressed, come evaluate him, and talk to the family. After getting off the phone, I quickly looked at the scan again. He's going to herniate if I do nothing. His brain showed effacement of the cisterns, a term we use as neurosurgeons as severe swelling, and a sign that his brain stem would possibly have a stroke, and he might not be able to recover at all if I didn't operate and operate soon. Quickly, I look at the labs. Platelets, 56. Hemoglobin, 9. He needs an operation now, but there's barely any time to transfuse. Neurosurgeons don't even operate on platelets less than 100, but there was only one unit of platelets in the entire town. I'd asked the blood bank as I was driving in for the operation. I needed probably five to six units to get him to the 100 for surgery, but I couldn't wait for us to get this from another city. We were in the middle of nowhere in West Texas. There was not time. The patient wasn't even stable to transfer for imaging yesterday, but now his life was in my hands. If he has any chance, I had to save him in less than favorable conditions for me as a surgeon. His blood would be like water. Within 20 minutes from the phone call that woke me up, I was at the patient's bedside, 
talking to the family. They wanted everything done, which means every surgery you can do to save his life, the family wants me to do it. This means even if he dies on the table, but they are betting he won't. They trust me as a surgeon to do what I need to do. And if he makes it through, my surgery will buy him the time he needs prior to him starting the long recovery and rehab. I'd already called the operating room during my commute. I'd posted the case and called the staff in. I had assumed the patient would want everything done or their family would want everything done for them. I didn't have the time to spare waiting for others to come in, so I called them in before I actually knew the family's wishes. However, this patient was really young, in his 50s, and I didn't disagree with their decision. I felt it was rational, and I would have done the same thing had the roles been reversed. I quickly examined him. Sick, not sick, or dying. Sick, and if I didn't intervene, dead. I had asked the family to step out of the room while I was doing my exam. I always do. The surgeon was correct. His pupil was fixed and dilated. His left side didn't move to pain. His right hand quickly went to my hand as I pinched his chest. He didn't follow, but he was in there, at least for now. I elevated his head a bed, a quick maneuver that decreases intracranial pressure, instructed respiratory to increase his respiratory rate to get the carbon dioxide down to help with the brain swelling. I placed the order for mannitol with pharmacy to help with the cerebral edema, and I told them I wanted it started, hung to gravity as soon as it arrived at the bedside. However, this would drop his pressure. He was already on a drip to keep it up. I asked the nurse to set up two units of blood. I would need them. His brain needed good perfusion due to a stroke. Just then, the anesthesiologist came to the bed to see him and transport him to the operating room. And just like I did in Abilene, I headed back to the room to make sure that the surgery was ready to go. Time was brain. The patient rolled into the operating room. I quickly shaved the right side of his head with electric clippers. When the patients show up after surgery, I always kid with them that I gave them their most expensive haircut ever. So with my patient, I planned out his trauma craniotomy incision. That was in the shape of a large question mark. I quickly did the first prep, asking the circulating nurse to perform the second one as I got my loops and headlight on and went to the scrub sink. Brandon, a scrub tech who had helped obtain his first assist certification, had actually arrived early before the start of the elective cases that day. He had offered to help me with the case, and I told him I needed a second set of hands, especially with this patient being so critical and his blood being so thin. My brown eyes studied the operating room. Once again, I was scrubbing in. My routine, the same, just like a pilot going through the checklist prior to takeoff. I cleaned out underneath my unmanicured nails with a nail file. Then the iodine brush scrubbed each finger, 
between the fingers, back and forth on my hands, and eventually extending to my forearms. I then rinse my hands and arms, passing through the lukewarm water from fingertip to elbow. I made my grand entrance into the operating room suite. I'd come a long way in the last 11 years. I'd gone from reporter as a medical student to healer as a neurosurgeon. My training was allowing me to give this sick patient a second chance of life. I said a quick prayer as I always did for God to bless my hands and give me the guidance to help the patient out the most. I rapidly gowned, double gloving, which I had learned from Leanne when she was my chief resident, actually on my third year general surgery rotation. Always double glove, Leslie. It's your best defense if you stick yourself. She had told me at the scrub sink on the first time that I ever scrubbed into a case. So from that time on, I always did, no matter how delicate the operation. I quickly draped out the incision with the blue towels, stapling them in place so they would not move. Next, the eye band drape was placed over the incision. This is a drape that we use for infection control. Last, I placed the craniotomy drape that had the bag incorporated over the incision and secured it in place. The scrub tech was now setting up the suction, bovie, and drill. I noticed the drill didn't have my acorn drill bit that I used to drill burr holes. I would drill the burr holes and then connect the dots with a craniotome prior to prying off the skull with a periosteal elevator. I heard the circular say, well, the other neurosurgeon used the last one last night in a tumor case. I replied calmly, I should have known that prior to scrubbing in. What do we have? Do we have a perforator? The circulator shook her head no. I was starting to get very frustrated. Do we at least have an M8 or a matchstick drill bit? I can make that work. I said this, frustrated though. The circulator went to grab the instrument while the scrub finished laying out the instruments on the mayo. Following timeout, I injected the local anesthetic with epinephrine, which would help stop the scalp bleeding. I needed everything to help with coagulation. I used a cauterata bobie tip to help open the skin and then a bobie to cauterize the scalp. I next elevated the scalp and the temporalis muscle from the skull and reflected it anteriorly, securing it with a towel clip, rubber band, and then alice to the drapes. I started to drill the burr holes with the matchstick. Inefficient for trauma craniotomy, but functional. My holes were smaller, and in retrospect, in my rush, I didn't spend the time opening them as well as I do when I have an acorn drill bit, which is wider and bigger. My routine that I'd used had been interrupted. Usually I use an acorn to drill a hole the size of a nickel to a quarter, and then I make a plane between the bone and the dura with a 2 curette before biting more of the inferior table of the bone away with a 3 kerosene and punch. This allows me to use a pinful 3 to sweep the dura off between the holes prior to me connecting them with a craniotome, and this allows me to lift the puzzle piece of the skull off with the assistance of a periosteal elevator. Every neurosurgeon has their own technique, but this is mine. However, with the smaller matchstick drill, my holes were smaller, and it was harder for me to strip the dura away with the Penfield 3 due to the angle in hindsight. 
I started connecting the holes with the craniotome, leaving the medial ones last since they were the closest to the sagittal sinus. And if I got bleeding there, I needed it to be last so I could get the skull off as fast as possible and tamponade it. Sagittal sinus bleeding could have a person bleed out in only a few minutes. Little did I know that that was just about to happen. The last two that I connected, there was blood pouring, a ton of blood. I was sure I ripped the dura, possibly tearing the sinus. I asked, do we have blood in the room like I asked before we started? We need it now. I called this out to anesthesia. The circulator replied, no, not yet. If you'd ever been to my operating room, you knew that I was pretty laid back. I always felt that the team could not function at their best if they're always walking on eggshells. But now my patience was running thin. It was my role as a surgeon to anticipate problems. First, the drill not being available after I'd run through the operation with the scrub tech and made sure that we had had everything. And now the blood not being available after I had called the blood bank, even prior to me seeing the patient getting everything ready for this operation that was an emergency. I had been given difficult conditions. I was asked to do the impossible. My patience was running so thin, especially now that I was jeopardizing my patient's safety. Calmly, but firmly, I called out, Guys, I'm a neurosurgeon, but I'm not God, and we need to get the blood in the room now. I have the situation under control, but we need to start transfusing the patient. I'm losing too much not to do it. He's probably already lost a unit, and we only started with nine. I sternly stated, taking over control in the operating room. Blood was pouring around the flap. I had to get it off. I told Brandon, as soon as I get this piece off, I'm going to need gel phone, a patty, and your Penfield 5. He knew this was my nickname for the pointer finger, told pressure on what's bleeding, and don't let up until I tell you. I was no Dr. Maggie Rice in the City of Angels movie where Seth, the angel, saw her as she lost her patient while operating on him in the operating room. I was not going to let death have him today, at least not while I was operating. Like an experienced dancing team, Brandon and I took control back in the operating room. I got the skull off, handed it to the scrub tech quickly, and I saw the tear in the dura towards the anterior portion of the sinus that we were able to tamponade quickly with the above technique and suction. We had avoided it a disaster. The patient had lost about 300 cc's of blood in a little over a minute, but that was it. I had it under control. I was a neurosurgeon and not God, but God had allowed me to take care of the situation and finished the operation like I was a veteran and had these situations occur commonly. My prayer had not been in vain. I was able to repair the sagittal sinus tear. I next opened the rest of the dura, allowing the stroke brain that had swelled room to breathe again. The patient was now stable. We were closing. He survived. Post-operative in the ICU, his pupil was back to normal, and he was in there, following commands again. 
I had kept him from dying. Leanne was right. It was the sick we could help. And I had done just that.